Thank you for listening to Spiritual Teachings with Shunyamurti, recorded live at the Sat Yoga Ashram in Costa Rica. To join us for a life-changing meditation retreat, or to make a donation to support this transformational work, please visit our website, www.satyoga.org. To access more teachings or guided meditations from Shunyamurti, please visit the members section of our website or our YouTube channel, Sat Yoga Institute. Namaste. You sent me a, a list of questions that were remaining, right, from yesterday. I want to read a few of them, and I think it's faster if I just read them rather than, than, than uh, you going through them. So uh, I, I'm going to, uh, to try to answer these questions, which I think are very thoughtful. Uh, maybe a lot of them actually may have been answered in our conversation already. Uh, the first one is, what's the difference between a negative projection onto someone and naming what is clearly evident in the behavior of someone who is abusing other people? I think this is a very good question and a very uh, difficult one. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a question, of course, that is extremely uh, relevant uh, in many people's lives. Uh, I think anyone who's in a family, if you, you're a parent, you have to uh, discipline your, your children and uh, you have to, uh, to use your, uh, your wisdom to be able to guide uh, as, a, as a moral leader. Uh, with the sufficient legitimacy that they will, uh, they will pay attention to you and learn from you. That's almost gone, by the way, uh, uh, on a parental level, and the social order has even taken it away from the parents, uh, uh, that they, they no longer are uh, granted that legitimacy by the big other, because the, the, the big other wants to destroy family systems and even couples and, and all relationships uh, of, of love and trust. Uh, but uh, uh, the, the key uh, point is that if there is something that is happening that is abusive, uh, one has to approach it without an emotional charge. And one has to approach it uh, with an open mind that if it's a, a possibility, if, if the conditions uh, allow it, to have a conversation with that person, to understand their perspective of where they're coming from as to why they're doing this and what's going on, and to try to deal with this uh, in a, uh, a way of uh, mediation and of... Uh, of, of probing uh, to understand with compassion in order to, uh, uh, to change what's happening, but without uh, accusation or uh, attack or, or that kind of thing. There, there are other situations where one will, may have to act uh, in a moment, and uh, one, one will have to trust one's heart about that. But if it's in a situation, let's say in a community, where, where someone is, uh, let's say, violating dharma in a way that's disturbing the field for everyone, uh, there should be a consensus that that is going on and, and a, an, a, an assessment by everyone involved uh, who are in agreement so that it's not something arbitrary and there is a, a clear uh, accuracy that the field supports. And then, uh, again, things should, should always be done 
uh, as uh, a, um, a therapeutic and an educational uh, process of, uh, of, of asking someone to, uh, who, who has, let's say, an admitted habit of acting out in ways that are abusive or, or otherwise uh, inappropriate, to probe uh, their, in their own inner work uh, to get to the root of it. And so things are, are, have to be treated in as compassionate and patient and tolerant and accommodating a way in order uh, to give time and space for uh, transformation to happen internally. But it, it has to, one, one has a responsibility uh, nonetheless to, uh, to support the, uh, the Dharma of the field so as not to create other kinds of problems that would be created if this one wasn't dealt with. It would become a precedent that would be imitated by others, et cetera, that kind of thing. So one has to uh, use one's wisdom and one's uh, uh, experience to, uh, to deal with this in a way that is as non-egoic as possible. <clears throat> and also to see the subconscious aspects of this that there is an inter whenever there is some kind of acting out, there's an internal resistance to being in the situation. One is calling for attention. One is calling for change. One, one may even be calling to, uh, to want to, to leave uh, and to, uh, to, to make an exit from a situation that one uh, cannot uh, be resonant with because of internal constructs or uh, or drives that are in opposition to uh, what's happening in the field. So there are, there are uh, great subtleties that have to be understood before one can deal with this, and uh, it has to be dealt with as, as much as possible through, uh, through receiving a, uh, a sense of the, uh, the rita, the, the, the divine order, and, uh, and, and the fulfilling of the needs of the field rather than uh, coming from any kind of a projection. And one becomes aware of the difference between those two because uh, one has an emotional charge and the other doesn't. So that's one thing. Another uh, that, that occurs to me is that the social order will put people into these kinds of positions that will create uh, 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 tremendous karmic difficulties. Uh, and, and for example, people want to be promoted in the social order to higher levels of management, for example, when they're not ready to be able to make these decisions in a non-egoic way. And uh, not only will things get out of order very quickly because people will smell the illegitimacy and the inaccuracy and all of that, but uh, one, uh, one will become overwhelmed with the, uh, the responsibility and the burden of the, uh, the kinds of decisions uh, one has to make. You know, imagine Putin having to make decisions that are going to kill uh, that are killing, massacring, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, Ukrainians, Russians, uh, others, uh, and, and having, uh, having that kind of uh, 
of a, a, a karmic burden that comes with that. I had a friend uh, who, long ago, a high school very close friend, who uh, became a, a lawyer and, uh, and then it was, uh, worked in the district attorney's office as a prosecuting attorney, which I wouldn't have done personally, but then got uh, uh, promoted, uh, actually elected to being a judge in the criminal court. And, uh, and we, we kept in contact over many years uh, as I was you know, observing the progress of her career, but I recall very distinctly the, the first uh, case that, that she wrote me about where she had to sentence someone to death. Uh, and and uh, this uh, was such a, a burden in her own soul that uh, she ended up dying uh, young uh, and, and could not handle it. And I don't know whether she was uh, aware of that, but to me it felt very much like uh, th that committing oneself to making those kinds of judgments uh, in, a, in, in a situation where one was not really at the pay grade to be able, uh, psychologically and spiritually, to be responsible for that uh, is, uh, is something that, that literally can be lethal. The light can go out. <laughs> so uh, uh, it's important uh, not to strive uh, to, to have power before uh, one is ready. In fact, one shouldn't strive for it at all. It should either, it appears as a result of the fields uh, bringing it into being, and, and uh, it, it doesn't come at all from any internal uh, drive for power. But, uh, but this is the kind of, uh, of situation that many egos who are within the social order, who have become accomplices uh, to mass murder, uh, anyone who's a pharmacist or a doctor or a nurse, right, who who knew but couldn't talk because they'd lose their job or uh, they would suffer in some way uh, uh, because uh, of speaking out uh, and, uh, and who became accomplices. Can you understand the burden that such beings are carrying? That will have consequences in their soul and in their, uh, their lives. So these are the kinds of, of, of questions that are they're far deeper than simply calling out somebody for, uh, you know, for doing something wrong. But it is a, uh, a, a universal uh, question that can only be resolved by attaining the, uh, the level of authority that comes from pure spirit. Anyway, a long answer, but I hope that was useful. Second one, to help discern between legitimate spiritual experience and possible lower mind delusion, uh, what can we expect the experience to be like when the ex awareness moves uh, to the soul in earnest with an open eye of wisdom? I think I answered that with, uh, with your question, but um, uh, it, it is a, an important uh, question because there are uh, delusions that happen. But a delusion can only happen to an ego, okay? So if you are egoless, you cannot have a delusion by definition. The delusion is, is something that happens in duality. It's a subject-object relation, you know? I, uh, I, I was visited by, uh, you know, uh, an angel or a, 
uh, an avatar or whatever. Well, one can have a, uh, have a fantasy of that or uh, demonic beings or whatever. They, they will only uh, be able to arise in a, an ego mind that is split. And, and it's the split consciousness that allows the delusion to occur. Once that split has been healed, then those sorts of things don't happen. The whole imaginary register of consciousness is transcended. Okay. The third question is, uh, someone is uh, saying, you know, okay, it's nice to talk about being in transcendence and having popcorn and enjoying the show, but what if your body is in a state of starvation or has been dragged off to the gulag to suffer a long, painful death, etc., uh, etc.? Et so, yes, uh, I agree. These these things are uh, do happen actually, and they have been happening. So the only thing one can do is to uh, be spiritually detached from the body identity and, uh, and dispassionate about its fate. There is, no, uh, there is no other way to deal with it than that. And everyone knows your body is mortal. You are going to die as a bodily being. And it could be a violent death. It could be a, a, a sudden uh, a death. Uh, that you see a lot of people, they even ha now call it sudden adult death syndrome because it's happening so often to people. Uh, now in that last moment where, when somebody suddenly realizes they're dying and then a minute later or less, uh, they, they, uh, their body has lost consciousness and they're actually dead. But in that short time, tremendous information comes. It all is revealed. Like, like near-death experiencers say, you're, you get a life review in that moment that you're clinically dead. Well, when, when these kinds of things happen, suddenly you know, uh, and uh, there may not even be time for remorse or anything else uh, until you enter into a bardo state after having left the body, but there will be a moment of clarity as the soul uh, realizes time is up and, uh, and, and this, this, this life is over. So uh, though those things will happen. And the more that one has gone through death prior to the, the death of the body, gone through the death of the ego, and, and has understood all of those shadow elements that don't have to suddenly pop up in a, in a bardo field as wrathful deities and that kind of thing, the, obviously the more that one can go directly to the great light and uh, not be detoured into some intermediary realm to deal with your shadow. So you don't want to have any shadow left. And uh, the sooner that is dealt with, the better. But by the way, it takes a long time to starve. You know, people go uh, on water fasts for three or four months before they even begin to lose muscle fiber, let alone reach starvation. Even thin people, or it's not, you, you, can, you can live for a long time, especially if you are uh, doing it deliberately and consciously. You're fasting, you're not starving. 
and, and the body's resources can be uh, preserved for a long time because the metabolism slows down, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, uh, you know, somebody will say, I skipped lunch and I'm starving, but they're not, right? Many, many people who will say that and actually think that they are starving, but it's a fantasy, it's a delusion. Uh, and, uh, and soon, with a food shortage, you may have to skip lunch more than once and, and realize you're not starving, so that there isn't a panic that has nothing to do with your physical well-being, but is simply a psychological terror of lack uh, that is being projected into the food system. So uh, it's very important that we uh, unplug all of those triggers that could create a panic uh, situation because there will be a general panic when the grocery stores start shutting down and uh, there is no food to be had in your neighborhood or in the town, right? There, there will be panic. You know, there was panic over the lack of toilet paper. Imagine <laughs> when there's no food to eat, right? So uh, we will be having to deal with that and, and, and seeing a general panic going on. Okay, enough of that. Uh, moving on. Uh, so, uh, okay, this question is, uh, uh, daily life requires constant choices in words and actions. That's the tricky part. Can you speak to that? Are you saying that there is no objective reality whatsoever? No, I'm not saying that at all. There is an objective reality. But what is being said is that the object is not really separate from the subject. In the same way that if you are dreaming and you're a character in the dream, that a dream, uh, for, from your perspective, is an objective world. And so to whatever extent you're living in subject-object duality, yes, you're in an objective world. But it can be objective without being real. Okay, Something can be objectively true within the frame of reference of the phenomenal plane and still not be real. And that discernment and distinction has to be made. Okay. Uh, okay, considering the coming collapse of economy, social orders, and any future that can be planned, are we all destined uh, to die, uh, uh, to transition to a magical, immortal state, or can we become divine avatars while alive in this current vessel without having to perish? Well, okay. A divine avatar is one who realizes they do not perish. You, that you are imperishable, but a divine avatar is not identified with the body. The avatar is the spirit, not the body. You know, the movie Avatar switched it, and now everybody thinks that the icon is the avatar, that, that it's the body uh, that, that is the avatar. No, it's the spirit that animates the body, that doesn't care if the body perishes or not. That's what being an avatar means, that you can, you can have one body and trade it for another or another or not have any or occupy uh, uh, many, many bodies. It doesn't matter. But you, you are in a, a state of consciousness that is non-duality, 
that, that isn't even perceiving separate bodies. So, uh, you're, you're, you, the, but bodies in the phenomenal plane have to uh, perish because they are constructs. They, they, are, they arise temporarily. Your body was not beginningless. If your body was beginningless, it will also be endless. Okay? But for most of you, your body was actually born at some point in time and space. If there's anybody who was not born, who just magically appeared as an adult, then that's different, okay? Uh, and we'll talk about that case uh, if it arises. Not that common. Uh, but uh, the, uh, no, we have to be uh, okay about death and rebirth and not disturbed by it. Okay. Is it true that alone meditation doesn't affect the morphogenetic field as much as group meditation? No, that's not the case. It, w what affects the morphogenic field is the coherence of the signal that you're giving off. So if there's a whole group meditating, but half of them are asleep, you know, they're not going to achieve much in the morphic field. Or if they're all you know, having you know, reverie states in chakra two and chakra three, you know, no. So everything will depend on the vibrational frequency and the coherence of the signal. Whether it's, it's coming through one vehicle or through many is not that relevant. It, what's, what's relevant is the strength of the signal. And, uh, and one sage can be equal to a group of a thousand, you know, meditating. So uh, it's not about numbers. Okay. Uh, healing. Is it harder to let go of constructs in familiar environments, origin, uh, country of origin, family, friends? Uh, no, except that if you are in a situation with others who are projecting on you to be a certain way and you feel obliged to be who they think you are, then of course you're going to limit your revelation that that's not who you are at all. And, and so it will become a, a barrier to, to going beyond a certain level of your being. But other than that, uh, you can leave your familiar surroundings and go to a cave uh, in India and take your internal family system with you and be just as conflicted in that cave as you are in New York City or wherever you might have gone from. Okay. What was the purpose of the real self creating or dreaming the duality? Thank you. Well, again... The bubble is the only place where the non-self can hang out, right? And, and it's only the non-self that can know the self. There has to be duality for the self to be realized. And then the popping of that duality back into the non-duality, that, that, that redemption of the self that had alienated itself from itself become uh, the opposite of itself, apparently, but opposites being the same, ultimately it must return to that unity of, of being. So it is that uh, duality and, and the creation of differences that produce an appreciation of the infinite complexity, the infinite facets of the diamond mind of God.
that otherwise uh, no being could ever, uh, could ever know because there wouldn't be beings to know all of those infinite perspectives and uh, potentialities. And uh, let's face it, God got bored, you know, not having a creation and, uh, and created the most fascinating, uh, uh, you know, cosmic drama that's imaginable. So, uh, you know, uh, why did Shakespeare write plays? Why did Beethoven write symphonies? You know, why does creativity happen? It's part of the nature of spirit to create. And so, of course, God is going to create worlds. Okay. Uh, once you are in non-duality, will you, st you and you still see others perceiving good and evil, but you you will not you will act from a different point of view that transcends karma. Is that right? Yes, that is right. You will be aware uh, that others are in duality, but you will be aware of its illusory nature. And here's someone saying, I struggle to understand what you brought up about protection. In my experience of unity with all life, there is no need for protection. Being in the moment in our true nature include love, peace, and harmony. There is zero fear and a welcoming of all experience, all moments. Why would one need protection in that space? Well, that is true. I totally agree with that. It's not that you have a need for protection. It is that grace comes to one who is in that state, not for their own sake uh, and not because there is fear, but because the power of grace changes the morphic field in that surrounding and produces a, a different outcome that, is, uh, that creates more goodness in the world as a result of uh, what looks like protection that is actually simply the unfoldment of the absolute perfection of, of reality that is always the case. So I, for example, have, a, have a, uh, uh, an anecdote. Uh, I had a teacher in India, and I told some people this story years ago, but it, it's, a, it's a true story. He, he was, um, uh, he, he had several uh, women disciples who were married, and they became brahmacharis as a result of studying with him, and their husbands became furious uh, that their, their wives would no longer have sexual relations with them, and they were furious at this uh, teacher for being the cause of their suddenly lacking uh, their pleasure. And, and they got together and hired a hitman uh, to kill him. And, uh, and they hired a, a Sikh uh, ex-soldier who was a, a very tough character who came in with a sword or a machete or something in the middle of the night and, uh, and when he got into the room, he saw the, the teacher sitting, meditating in samadhi, and, uh, and he was going to run him through with this, the sword, but suddenly he saw that his body was filled with light and that it was emanating a force field that, that paralyzed him. And then suddenly he was just totally filled with remorse. He began to cry. He realized that he was in the presence of God and he threw the sword down. He bowed down to him and, and he became his disciple. Okay. Now the teacher didn't need that. It didn't happen out of fear, uh, but it produced uh, extraordinary results in the community 
particularly among the husbands who had hired him <laughs> and, and others who, who shifted their attitudes as a result. And the guy became the night watchman at the ashram. And so I, I talked to him and I heard the story from him. And, and, uh, and he was protecting everybody in the ashram. Nobody minded. Most people didn't even know he was there because they were asleep before he went on duty, you know, because you have to get up like at 3 a.m., you know, at the latest there. So you, you weren't a night owl. But, but he did walk around with a rifle, actually. Mostly he chased away monkeys, I think. But, uh, you know, he, he symbolically was protecting the ashram. But not because anybody was afraid, you know, it, it wasn't about that. But uh, the, the, the whole uh, um, uh, transformation of his life uh, into becoming a yogi and serving in the only way he could serve in that capacity, uh, becoming a, 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 a true uh, devotee, uh, had a, a, an extraordinary shift on the whole community. So anyway, that's just... Uh, one story of why those things happen it has nothing to do with fear. Okay. Uh, is trauma healing an act of the ego? No, healing can never be an act of the ego, but it can happen through acts of the ego. So a therapist or a, a Reiki practitioner or someone who is still in the ego can, can do work that has effects uh, of healing, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't their ego that produced the effect. It may even have happened in spite of their ego, but out of uh, their prayer or, or their, um, their good wishes and their intention of, uh, of producing good karma may have had an effect in bringing grace to bear on the situation. Uh, can trying to fight the ego actually feed it? Yes, it does because who is fighting the ego? It has to be another part of the ego, right? So that's not how you get rid of the ego. Uh, you, you have to actually love it to death, uh, but, but through disidentifying from it and recognizing it as an artifact that uh, needs to be taken out of its misery. Okay. Uh, another one is about time as a circle, and yes, a circle is endless. Time is cyclical, uh, but the cycle of time exists within eternity. So from the perspective of God, there is no time. All time is present, and, and, that, and eternity is present in every moment of time if you're in that state of awareness. So really, there is no time, and, uh, and that's the illusion that is ultimately uh, transcended. Okay, and then there is uh, someone who, who is criticizing me for uh, bringing up this question of, uh, of power. Uh, he, said, he mentioned how many great yogis are leaving the world, leaving their power up for grabs. It's not exactly that. <coughs> it's not just the absence of great yogis, but the loss of faith of the general population that is producing... Um, uh, a, a despair and hopelessness and a, a disconnect from God. And those who believe are angry at God even rather than, than, than making a connection with love. So therefore there are fewer instruments who can download that, uh, that divine power. But it's not power that can be used by the ego. It's the power to surrender the ego. 
that's what is now available, the power to become egoless. And uh, I know that everyone knows about siddhis. You know, they're in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, and if you've read the Maha Siddha literature, uh, you know, it talks about uh, the powers that uh, are gained by, or can be gained by, by people in higher states of consciousness. But the, uh, there is a fail-safe uh, protection that the kind of powers that can be abused will not be given unless uh, there is an egoless uh, situation and a condition. And so uh, the, uh, the powers are, it's not a problem. Uh, but yes, there are people who may start out practicing yoga or, or other forms of, of spiritual processing in order to get powers but they will soon realize uh, that uh, they are a dead end and they will produce negative karmic feedback or backlash and uh, the, you can't get to liberation uh, as long as that desire is there. After one is desireless, these things emerge. And they often emerge without the knowledge of the embodied level of the individual about them. Like Ramana would often be told that miracles happened around him and people would come and thank him. Somebody would pray to him and then they'd be healed or something miraculous would happen. And Ramana said, really? Uh, he didn't know anything about this and, and didn't care. But, oh, that's interesting, you know. Uh, but there was no, uh, no interest, no, obviously no taking credit or, or uh, no, no interest in uh, uh, the consequences of any of this because the perfection of all that is is a given. But, uh, but these things uh, happen uh, without necessarily your even knowing that they are going to happen, uh, no matter what level of consciousness you're in, because there's no interest in the, the phenomenal plane activities any longer. And you know, there, uh, there, if Padre Pio was very famous for this. And, and he, he, miracles were happening. He, was, he had the, uh, the stigmatism, you know, the, the wounds of Christ. He was bleeding, and, uh, and he became famous, and people would visit him. Uh, and uh, and, and uh, by, by talking to him or praying with him or doing a confession with him, extraordinary miracles would happen. And, uh, and the, the, uh, the papal uh, establishment got afraid that he was getting too popular and they, they shut him down and, and locked him into his cell for a long time. But people began to report that they saw him in Rome or they saw him in other places. He was bilocating and, uh, and, and interacting with people all over the place. He wasn't stuck in his monastery uh, after all, right? But uh, he, he claimed he didn't know anything about this. I think he actually knew more than he let on. But nonetheless, um, it, these kinds of, of things would happen. 
because he was in an egoless state. There's one report by a, an Italian a pilot who in World War II said that they saw him 20,000 feet in the air telling the plane to turn right or left or whatever it was really quickly because f there was flak who was being shot at it. And, uh, and, the, and the pilots literally saw him standing and, and uh, you know, directing him to turn, and he did. And they saw the bullets uh, from, from the flak coming up and just missing the plane. So, you know, he was uh, active in many ways, but uh, all of this was happening at the level of the universal consciousness using his form, not uh, at any kind of a personal egoic level. So hopefully that is, uh, that answers that question. And then the last one, the last question was about the Anasazi. Do I know anything about what happened to them? You know, the, this tribe in the, in the southeast that disappeared. <clears throat> the only thing I know is this. I once had a client who was a, a scholar of the Anasazi, and she, um, she was obsessed with them and would go there and, and visit the ruins and uh, lead retreats uh, and, and studied everything there was to study about them. And she came to me to do a past life regression to see if she was ever there. And so I did a, a series of regressions with her. She had several lives, apparently, in that culture. And uh, uh, you can take it with a grain of salt, what, whether it was fantasy or whether uh, this was uh, uh, true historically. But uh, the, the tribe came to a point where there was a, uh, almost a shift of dynasty. The old uh, tribal chiefs died, and the next generation wanted to do things differently. They couldn't heal the conflict, and they split up. Some uh, became what later were known as the Hopis. Some became the Zunis, some other tribes. But, but most of them uh, uh, traveled to different areas and uh, set up shop there. But uh, they, uh, they retained a lot of the uh, uh, let's say, the, the shamanic knowledge of the earlier uh, culture. And uh, it only gradually died out, but it still exists among some of the Hopi shamans. That's all I can tell you, I hope. Thank you for listening to the Spiritual Teachings with Shunyamurti podcast. For more information on programs and retreats, click on the calendar section of our website, www.satyoga.org. Our work is made possible by the generous support of our listeners, viewers, and members. To make a donation, please visit the donate page of our website. We thank you for your support in our mission to share this timeless wisdom with the world. Namaste.